So we're starting a new series this morning called Spiritual Formation. And here's how I want to uh, set, set it up. Um, beginning now and increasingly in coming years and decades, Christians in the Western world, in the United States, are going to have to reckon with a fact. And the fact is this. Our culture is becoming, really every day, increasingly post-Christian. Pew Research Studies and Barna Research Studies have done a lot of studies about these sorts of issues. And they did a study in 1952, and in that study they asked Americans, is religion very important to you personally? And in 1952, 75% of Americans answered that question, yes. A few years later, 20 years later, in the mid-1970s, that number had dropped to 48%. So from 75% to 48% in 20 years. In 2010, that study was done a third time, and the number was at 31%. So in 60 years, the number of Americans that answer that question by the Pew Research Center has gone from 75% to 31%. So that's one of many metrics we can use to show that there's been a radical decline of religious commitments in the Western world in the last 50 or 60 years. But that's not just seen in widespread data and matrix. It's in metrics, excuse me. It's, it's seen in other ways too. Um, James Davidson Hunter is a Christian uh, scholar at the University of Virginia, and he's written a great book called To Change the World. And in that book, he talks about the idea that culture is formed and shaped by really very few powerful institutions and centers and people. Uh, to elaborate, there are, there are a large number of evangelical Christians still in the United States. In fact, 30% of Americans today would say that they are Orthodox Christians. And so you might think, well, that's a huge percentage. Christianity must have a wide cultural impact. But Hunter makes the point that that's actually not true because culture is shaped largely by a very small group of people who have great presence and power in urban, academic, and cultural centers. This is called symbolic capital. So just as an example, if you teach sociology at Harvard, you have more cultural influence than if you teach sociology at Northeast Lakeview. No offense to Northeast Lakeview, but that's just a fact. If you are a movie producer in Hollywood, you have massive cultural power and authority. If you are in Washington, D.C., around the governmental elite of our country, you have massive cultural power and authority. And in those centers of authority, there are a minuscule portion of Orthodox believers. The point is, while 30% of America is Orthodox Christian, they occupy only a tiny percentage of the positions of influence in our society. And so what we see more and more in our age is people who have power demanding that religious life be relegated to the private sphere entirely and it have no sway in the public arena. And so what does that all mean? Here's what it means. It means that we are in a post-Christian age. And because of that, Christians must reconsider what it means to be the church. The church in America, the task of the church in America is no longer, if it ever was, to fight intellectual theological battles with the liberal elites. The task of the church in America is to re-evangelize the secular West. 
And so the question for all of us to consider is, how is that going to happen? And what is our role as followers of Jesus in doing that? My contention this morning is that the main way that Christians like you and like me do that is by living as faithful, spiritually formed people in the places that God has put us. We need spiritually thick as opposed to spiritually thin Christianity. Now, this is exactly how the church rapidly expanded in the ancient world. In the first four centuries after Jesus was raised from the dead, the church went from a very tiny sect in a far-off part of the Roman Empire to becoming the dominant cultural force and religious force in Rome. And the way that happened isn't because Christians had positions of power. The way that happened is by normal, everyday Christians in the major urban centers of the Roman Empire living lives that were radically countercultural. Lives where they claimed to believe in something that most of their neighbors didn't believe in. For example, monotheism, that there is only one true God. And they lived radically countercultural lives in the way they treated other people as well. Christians were known for their concern for social needs and social justice and caring for the poor and loving their neighbors and taking care of babies and orphans that had been abandoned. And that's how Christianity spread. It was through poor, ordinary, everyday Christians in the cities around Rome, planting churches and living radically countercultural lives. And what we need to understand is that more and more and more 21st century America resembles 3rd century Rome. And so what does it mean then? What does it mean for us as the people of God to live spiritually thick lives? That's what we're going to look at for the next eight weeks in this series that I'm calling Spiritual Formation. We're going to look at eight different practices that Christians should be engaging in Eight different habits that we should be forming as we join in God's mission in a post-Christian world. That's what this series is about. So let me give you the eight practices right now of spiritual formation. Here they are. First, hospitality, scripture, community, fasting slash moderation, service, prayer, worship, and giving. Those are the eight practices of spiritual formation that we're going to be considering in the coming weeks. And so this morning, we're going to kick off the series by thinking about the idea and the practice of hospitality, of hospitality. And so I want to ask three questions as we look at these two passages that Laurel read for us about hospitality. First, what is hospitality? Second, why is it important? And third, why should we practice it or how should we practice it? What is it? Why is it important? How do we do it? Okay, so that's where we're headed first then. What is hospitality? Look with me in those two verses that Laurel read from Hebrews 13, verses 1 and 2. This is one of the great passages in the New Testament to understand the biblical idea of hospitality. Look at what the author of Hebrews writes there in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. That's the first command or exhortation that he gives. And that word there, brotherly love, is one word in the original language, the language of Greek And uh, the word is Philadelphia, which literally means brotherly love. And if you've ever been to the city of Philadelphia, you know how ironic that is. I spent five years in Philly. All you have to do is go to one Eagles game to know that it's ironic that Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. There's not much love there, especially for Cowboys fans like myself. 
And so Philadelphia needs to repent of that and following the Eagles and become Cowboys fans. But that's off the, off the topic. So the point is, Philadelphia means brotherly love. That's the first thing that's being encouraged here of followers of Jesus. He's encouraging readers to cultivate love for each other. Now that seems almost to go without saying. We see that all over the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, have sincere brotherly love for one another from a pure heart. So Christians, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are being called in this verse to be a person who treats other people as they really are, image bearers of God, and who treats other Christians as they really are, family members, brothers and sisters in the household of God. We're to sacrifice our own interests for the sake of others and seek the good of the community of faith. That's what it means to love one another. That's what Philadelphia is. So that's the first command. And then in verse 2, we see a second command. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, those two commands aren't grammatically tied to each other, but they're thematically tied to each other. In other words, the author here is saying one of the ways that you love one another is by showing hospitality. Now, the Greek word, and I hate to do the Greek word thing, but it really matters for these verses because it gives you further insight into what the verses mean. So the Greek word for love one another was Philadelphia. And the Greek word there for show hospitality to strangers, that's all one word. And the word is xenophilia coming from two Greek words, phileo, which means to love, and xenos, which is a foreigner or an immigrant. So literally, hospitality means love for foreigners, loving people that aren't like you. And then he alludes in the second part of verse 2 to a story from further back in the Bible, where he says, thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Here he's referring to a story in Genesis chapter 18 where we read about Abraham and Sarah and they're camped under these oak trees right outside of Sodom. And God sends two angels along with the angel of the Lord to destroy Sodom. But before they destroy Sodom, they come and they hang out with Abraham and Sarah. And I just want to read a couple of these verses to give you an idea of what the Bible thinks about when it talks about hospitality. Listen to this, Genesis 18. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, listen to this, he ran from the tent door to meet them and he bowed himself to the earth and he said, oh master, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. That sounds great, Abraham. And Abraham, verse six, went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared. And he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. That's an example of biblical hospitality. And that's what the author of Hebrews refers to to illustrate the point he makes. And for the first three or four centuries of the church, hospitality wasn't just sort of an add-on to the Christian experience. Rather, hospitality was an essential component 
of a Christian's social life and really of a Christian's existence. If a Christian in the first few centuries of the church was going to travel anywhere, hospitality was an essential component of that. He would go from one city to the next city expecting and anticipating to be able to stay with other believers in Jesus Christ. The New Testament itself is an example of that. As you see Paul go to all the different cities that we read about in Acts and plant different churches. So in the ancient world, and really still today in the Middle East, hospitality was, you might even say, the primary way that brotherly love was demonstrated. So to summarize then, what is hospitality in the Bible? What is it in a way that's meaningful for 21st century Christians? Here's my definition. Hospitality means to give loving welcome to those outside your normal circle of friends. It's opening your life and your house to those perhaps who believe differently than you do. So hospitality is to care for people who are not a part of your normal circle of friends. It's to invite new people, strangers, those not like you, into your life and to welcome them into your home. And this understanding of hospitality should help us think about what it means to follow Jesus as a spiritually thick person in a post-Christian world. So are you doing that? Is that a regular part of your Christian experience? I think if you answer no to that question, one of the reasons why we don't do this perhaps as faithfully as God calls us to is because we've confused the concept of hospitality with the concept of entertainment. Jen Wilkin is a uh, Uh, author and blogger. You can read some of her stuff at the Gospel Coalition. She attends a a sister Acts 29 church in Dallas, and she's written a lot of really helpful stuff on this topic. And uh, at one point in one of her blogs that I read this week, she wrote this. Let me just quote this. Hospitality shows interest in the thoughts, feelings, pursuits, and preferences of its guests. It is good at asking questions and listening intently to answers. Hospitality focuses attention on others. Entertaining is always thinking about the next course. Hospitality burns the rolls because it, was all, it was because it was listening to a story. Entertaining obsesses over what went wrong. Hospitality savors what was shared. Entertaining seeks to impress. Hospitality seeks to bless. Part of the reason that we struggle with this is because we think hospitality means everything has to be perfect and luxurious and amazing and beautiful. And that's just not the real world, people. When people come into your homes, I mean, it shouldn't be a pigsty. But it should bear signs of normal life. You should be who you are. Be normal. I know we're not really normal as Christians. We're in a post-Christian age. But be who you are. And show people who you are and love one another well in that way. That's exactly what the New Testament is getting at when it talks about the idea of hospitality. So that's what hospitality is. It's welcoming into your home those who are outside your normal circles. Second, why is that important? I mean, who really cares, honestly? I mean, because it's nice for me to think about it, but why does the Bible seem to emphasize this? And make no mistake, the Bible does emphasize it. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it's one of the qualifications for elders. Elders are required to be hospitable. 
It's a big deal. It's mentioned as an aspect of Christian conduct by Paul, by Peter, by James, by John, and here by the author of Hebrews. It was and it is a central piece of living a thick Christian life. So why? Why is hospitality a logical outflow of the Christian experience? Let me give you two reasons, okay? The first reason why hospitality is important is because hospitality shows us or it's, it's because God has been hospitable to us in the gospel. So hospi- hospitality matters because God has been hospitable to us. Look with me at that parable that Laurel read from Luke 14. This is Jesus telling a story, Jesus speaking. And he says there in verse 16, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Now, who is that man? Well, we read that he's a wealthy man. In Matthew's version of this story, he's a king. And he's hosting this huge feast, a huge party. And the man represents God. He represents God the Father in the story. And the party, as we read, is the kind of party we would expect to be for the elite, for the insiders, for the movers and shakers of that culture. And so the initially invited guests are invited, but none of them come. They all have excuses for why they won't attend. And so the host sends his servant to go out and invite, verse 21, the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame. And and notice that the places that the servants of the host go to are the roads and the highways and the city squares. And what that means, you see, clearly, is that the people being invited into this amazing feast by this very powerful man at this point are the poor. They're the blind beggars of the world. They're the disheveled. They're the unlikeliest of all you see. And so I want you to imagine that with me. Imagine, if you can, the servants approaching the poor blind beggar and handing him an invitation and helping him stagger into the banquet hall. Imagine the servants approaching a prostitute, plying her trade on the street corner and taking her away from her pimp into the presence of the host. Imagine the servants taking the poorest and the lowliest, scrounging in the gutters for that day's food and setting them before this table filled with wine and food and delicacies. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Because that's exactly what God is like. God, you see, is a host. God is hospitable. God takes the broken. God takes the weak. God takes the distraught, the messy, the sinful, the addicted, the compulsive, the helpless, and the poor. Honestly, God takes people like you and me. And he brings them to a place that they never deserved or expected to be. And there's no one in this story that's beneath God in his invitations. Anyone and everyone is welcome. Anyone and everyone is invited because the king is gracious to anyone and to everyone. The point is, God is hospitable to us. God is a great host. God one day is going to give a wedding feast for his son, the groom, who marries his bride, the church. And he invites those who are strangers to him and makes them his friends. 
Romans chapter 5, 8 tells us that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The reason we should be hospitable is because God, in his infinite mercy and grace towards you in Jesus, is hospitable. You do not deserve to enter into God's party. You don't belong there. But Jesus, through his death, brings you in free of charge because he's kind and merciful and compassionate. Remember Beauty and the Beast? One of my favorite Disney movies. I love that movie. And you could actually make the case. In fact, I'm going to make the case right now. That hospitality is the main theme of that story. I mean, if you remember the story, um, be our guest, be our guest, put our magic to the test. It's hospitality. I mean, why are the creatures in the beast's castle so intent on showing Belle hospitality? Well, partly because, remember, the beast is a beast precisely because he wasn't hospitable. Remember what happens at the beginning? I think I'm remembering this right. Ainsley's going to correct me, I'm sure, if I'm wrong. Um, He refuses hospitality to this old woman who knocks on his door, but she's actually a very powerful enchantress. And she turns him from a dashing prince into this hideous beast. And, and he has to learn that love is accepting those who might not be impressive on the outside. And Lumiere and Clocksworth and, of course, Belle help him to understand that so that he will become a prince again. His story is largely about learning what it means to welcome those who aren't like him. And that's exactly what the story of the gospel is. The gospel is God welcoming people who are not like him, who are not worthy of him, who don't deserve to sit at his table. But because he's loving and compassionate and steadfast in his mercy, he brings us in all the same. So why is hospitality important? Because God is the infinitely greatest host and he has invited us in by God's grace. But the second reason that hospitality is important is because hospitality is more and more intertwined with evangelism in a post-Christian age. That's often how it happened in the ancient church. In the ancient church, it's unlikely that Christians sort of did the door-to-door knocking for evangelism. Uh, what they did was they invited their neighbors into their house. And as I mentioned earlier, they lived radically countercultural lives and showed great concern for the poor and cared about their neighbors. And I bet in your experience as a Christian, it's similar to mine. It's true that there's a correlation between hospitality and evangelism. Where hospitality happens, evangelism happens. And where hospitality doesn't happen, evangelism doesn't happen. Sarah Reimer, our uh, director of communications, was talking with me about hospitality a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about inviting people to church, to our church services, and Sarah challenged me. I'm sure you're shocked that Sarah challenged me, if you know Sarah, and um, she said I could say that, by the way, and um, Sarah said, you know, before we invite people to church, we should invite them into our homes, and Sarah's actually right about that. Probably you should have people into your home before you invite them to our worship services or to some church event, because then they're going to know that you just want to be their friend. You want to have a relationship with them. You care about them. They aren't your spiritual projects. They're people that you love. And the point is that you don't really love people and care for people if you're not regularly inviting them into your life. So hospitality and evangelism are really, in so many ways, the same thing. The best illustration I've seen of that in 
recent years is from a, a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, there's actually a really good video that you can check out after the service or at some point this week at crossway.org where she tells her story. Rosaria Butterfield was a liberal, atheist, lesbian professor at Syracuse University. And uh, she was a tenure professor who had a good bit of influence in her particular scholarly field. And she wrote a paper, or she wrote an article in the local newspaper there in Syracuse at one point about why the religious right was so hateful. And uh, the pastor of the small little Reformed Presbyterian church in that town called Rosaria Butterfield and said, hey, I read your article in the paper and I really enjoyed it and we'd love to just have you over for dinner. And Rosaria said, okay, I'll, I'll be there. And so she came over to the dinner of this pastor and, and his wife and at the dinner, Rosaria, you know, she's ready for all the arguments for why there is no God, you know, and ready to get evangelized and all this stuff. But they didn't do any evangelism. They didn't do seven spiritual laws or two ways to live or any of those things. They just had dinner with her and asked her questions and got to know her. And they had a great time. They didn't even invite her to church. And at the end of the meal, Rosaria said, hey, this has been great. Uh, when can we do this again? And they said, well, how about next Wednesday? And so they begin a regular weekly mealtime together, just becoming friends, getting to know each other, having deep conversations, even though they knew that they disagreed with each other. And over time, Rosaria tells, she became convinced through the love of these two friends and also through the testimony of the Bible that Jesus Christ actually is who he says he is. She was converted and came to faith in Christ and now writes from a Christian perspective about similar Things. And one thing that she says is that hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian faith. Hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian faith. Home is a vital place to invite your neighbors. She talks about how her LGBT community was always open to her, that they were remarkably hospitable, they had a remarkable community. And until she saw the same thing, in the life of Christ followers, Christianity had no credibility to her whatsoever. You see, friends, that's a tremendous example of what regular, normal, ordinary love for neighbor via hospitality can look like in an age that's increasingly post-Christian. So why is hospitality important? Because it reflects the gospel and because it's more and more intertwined with evangelism. Okay, third point, real quick here. How can we practice hospitality? I just want to give you two things, okay? Two things. First, welcome people on Sundays. Now, we have new people every week. One of the things about San Antonio is that we're a military community largely. A large portion of our church is always military, which means there's some downsides to that. We have to say bye to you at some point. But one of the great upsides is that there's always people coming in. And I know when we do this greeting time every week, I have people tell me, why do we do this? I don't want to do this. It's awkward. And it is a little awkward. And I want you to embrace the awkward. And I want you to say hi to someone that you don't know. And I don't want you to go straight to the people that you're immediately the most comfortable with. What I want to do is talk to Tim about whatever Netflix show I was watching. Because Tim and I have known each other for five years and we talk about that stuff all the time. Or I want to talk with someone else about football or basketball or something. But what's hospitable is finding the person that I don't know and saying hello and introducing myself and saying, I'm glad you're here this morning. That's a very simple way that we as a people of God can be hospitable. And I think we do a pretty good job of that 
actually. And so I want to encourage you and exhort you to continue. That's one way. A second way is to have ordinary meals and invite people over. In fact, I would like you this week to think about the people that live on your block. Or if you're on the farm, think about the people who have farms next to you. And uh, I want you to think about if you know your neighbor's names. And I want you to think about if you know anything about your neighbor's stories. And I want you to think about a time you could perhaps have a neighbor over for dinner one night or over for a beer or over for coffee or over for whatever. And invite them over. And don't do it because my pastor told me to do it and I've got to add this to my spiritual checklist and I might get to... Don't do that. Don't talk about the gospel with them unless they say, what is the gospel? Then you should do that. (laughs) Just be a friend. Be nice. Be outgoing. Because remember, more and more and more in our world, people think Christians are just off in their own little tribe, doing their own little thing and only concerned about themselves. And in a place like San Antonio, there's a lot of people. I would imagine there are people in your neighborhood who have been burned by the church and want nothing to do with her and are sick and tired of the religiosity that pervades our state and our city. Well, that's going away in large part. That's going away in large part, but we can show that dismantling that false construct construct of what Christianity is and rebuilding people up through hospitality is, is the way of Jesus. There's two very simple things for you to prayerfully consider that I personally, to be honest with you, have been convicted of in my own life this week, and I'm going to prayerfully consider as well. Can we be a people who live as a spiritually thick faith family, enjoying God's hospitality in the gospel, and then living on mission in our own efforts at hospitality. May that be so for us. Let's pray.